house, but they started calling me. <laughs> okay, on the back of your bulletin, uh, I want to draw attention to a couple of things. How many of you have been greeted by someone when you got here? Let me see. That's all? Okay, those of you that weren't greeted need to go sign up. <laughs> no, we need greeters. We need people to stand there and say hello to people. You see me, I'm running all over the place talking, and sometimes I'm late for the first song if I'm playing. You know, the greeters are the most important people in our church because they're the ones that give the first impression. They're more important than Mark or me or anything. So uh, we need you, we need people to greet. So as soon as church, in fact, you don't even have to wait till church is over. You can do it while I'm preaching. Go out there and sign up on the sign-up sheet and become a greeter. Second thing is the food bank. We have another sign-up sheet for the food bank. We need help for both of those things. Those are two of our ministries that uh, are just delightful because we're always meeting people and helping them. And if you're shy, that's okay. You just have to smile a little bit. That's all you have to do. Shake their hand and say, hi, it's nice to meet you. That's all you got to do. You could do that, right? All right. Okay, this morning we're going to stop again and pray for Don and Patty. <clears throat> Don and Patty Wolf, as you know, he was diagnosed with pretty aggressive cancer about six weeks ago. And uh, he was admitted to the hospital last night with uh, some kind of infection. And uh, that's not what a cancer patient needs. And he's in the hospital for at least 48 hours. Don't Please don't run over to go visit him. He's just over at the hospital here. Uh, check before you go. He's pretty weak and disoriented. He's fighting for his life. That's the truth. He's fighting for his life. And we need to lift him up as we have many people over the years. So let's stop as a congregation and lift him up. Father, we do lift up Don and Patty both. Lord, uh, the honest truth is we know that Don is fighting for his life. And uh, God, we just pray that you would intervene. We pray, Lord, that you would just take care of this mess. Lord, whether you use chemo, whether you touch his body just with your fingers, whatever it takes, Lord, I don't care. I just want you to heal him. He has too much to contribute. Paul wrestled with that. He said to die is gain, but to live with us is Christ, to be more important. Father, I pray that you would help him. He is fighting for his life. Give him strength, Lord. The medicine that they give him, let it work. Let him rest and let him sleep. And Father, I pray for Patty just right now. And I know what it's like to watch your spouse in a very serious fight for life and not be able to do anything about it except to turn to you. And God, honestly, that's not enough. You made us for more than that. You made us to impact people. I pray that your grace would be sufficient, that you would strengthen her during this time. And in the, in the quiet moments of her own, struggle that she would find you there and help us as a congregation to love them well during this time and father i pray for those in our church that are sick that i don't even know about uh, that are struggling with something that i'm not even aware of that you would be very present in their lives as well father i pray for our president and our government that you would continue to give them wisdom lord to guide us as a nation we have so much hurt and division and uh, help us lord as a nation to figure out somehow to reconcile and Lord, I pray for the upcoming election. First of all, thank you for the freedom and the honor to vote our conscience, which we will do. But Lord, we look to you in confidence and faith that you know what's best for our country. So select the next president that you want us to have. And then uh, 
Father, I pray during the selection process that somehow you would use this as an opportunity to draw our country's eyes back to you. Uh, I know that a large portion of our country no longer follows you, and I pray that you would change that, Lord, and use us as a church to make that happen. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay, so we're in a series, um, Making Sense of the Bible. This has been generated from all the discussion that we've had the last year on um, asking the question, um, can women be elders? Uh, You guys raised it, and the elders dealt with it. You know uh, what we said, that we have freedom in this area, so we're going to let the membership of our church decide. So um, the last six months, we've been, the elders have been in conversation with all of you, and we've had lots of coffees and teas and breakfasts and lunches and dinners and small groups and lots and lots of time talking, and questions have been generated through that, and the staff and elders asked me to take three or four weeks and to address some of those questions, which was what we've been doing. Last week, we looked at what is our foundational principle, and we expressed it this way. Our foundational principle when it comes, let me pause and say something. We're not so much looking at how to interpret the Bible, we're looking at how to apply it. So we've not asked any of you to change your interpretation of some of these passages. Um, Our own elders are divided on some of the interpretation of this. We're asking a a different question. How do you decide to apply a text or not apply a text? And uh, that may sound strange to you to ask it that way, but there's much in the Bible we no longer apply in today's cultural context. And how do we make that decision? So the very first principle, which we surfaced last week, is God's love for a broken world guides how we, um, how and when we apply a passage today. His love for this broken world tells us, helps us, guides us in when to obey a passage. Or another way of saying it in the form of a question is, does our interpretation lead to, and our practice, lead to bringing God's love out to this world which needs his grace so significantly? Um, We're using the Bible as our primary example, and we're going to use the Bible to answer the question of how to apply the scripture. And that's where we got that principle from. Remember, while all scripture is profitable and all scripture is redemptive, it's not redemptive for you. Not all of it. Not directly. It was for someone. We used the example of Deuteronomy 14 last week. Uh, Do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. That's not redemptive to us today. But by studying it, we learn about a redemptive God in that context. And it meant something to those people. So there are whole passages of Scripture that we would not apply today because it was meant for someone else. And the real fun, challenging part is to figure out when that happens and when it doesn't. We raised the question, what does a plain reading of Scripture mean? That's a phrase that's been kind of discussed amongst us. What does it mean, a plain reading of Scripture? doesn't necessarily mean a literal reading. It could mean that. I use the example of John 6, where he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot uh, be part of me. And how the Catholics and the Protestants divide over that. The Catholics see that as more literal. Protestants see it as more figurative and metaphorical. And I said, which one's right? I don't know. I know what I believe and can argue that. But one of the great things about a community church is we have a variety of opinions out there on how to apply that. So it may be a literal interpretation, may not. The key behind a plain reading of Scripture is really to ask the question, what did the author intend? 
That's really what we're asking. And that's what communication is all about between us anyway. When we're talking to each other, we're really answering the question, what do you mean by that? When we miss that, we miscommunicate, don't we? And so we often have to go back and say, well, I thought you meant this, but what do you actually mean? And so that's what we're addressing with the Bible. So then, even though we may be able to understand the author's intent, it doesn't always tell us how to apply it or if it still is relevant today. I used the example last week in 1 Corinthians 11. If you gave me three minutes, I could convince all of you, I bet, that Paul taught clearly that a woman should wear a symbol of authority on her head. But what I bet I can't convince you of is that it's applicable today. Why? How did you come to that conclusion that it wasn't applicable? That's what we're wrestling with is how to make sense of that. So principle number one, God's love for a broken world guides how and when we apply a passage today. Or the question that we're answering is, does our interpretation and our practice lead to bringing God's love to a broken world? The second principle, which I want to talk about today, is does our interpretation and practice lead to redemption in our current world, our own setting today? Now, that's a technical term, redemption. What do we mean by that? Redemption, the word redeem, that's all those words in that little uh, matrix there. It's just to be simple about it and powerful. It means that you have gotten yourself in a jam and you can't get yourself out of it. So let's say that you have you maybe have not been very wise with your money, and next thing you know is you're in over your head with debt. You've got yourself in a jam, and you can't get yourself out of it. Think about how you feel if somebody else comes along and says, let me pay off your debt for you. That's redemption. That kind of stuff is all through the Bible. That's, that's redemption. So ultimately, we see it in our personal lives when uh, Jesus comes and dies for us on the cross, he redeems us. We've got ourselves in a jam regarding sin. We can't get ourselves out of it. So redemption means he takes care of the problem for us. That's what it means. So the second, if the first principle is how to show God's love to this broken world, the second principle is how do we do it in a way that rescues the world, that brings good things to the world? I have uh, challenged you. A couple of you have actually done it. I do require this in the classroom sometimes, is that you challenge you to go to the uh, United Nations website and uh, look at the page where they evaluate the uh, nations based on human rights, pass, fail. Draw a line down the middle, put all the ones that pass on one side, all the ones that fail on another, and here's what you will find. Those that pass have significant Christian influence. Those that fail do not. It's black and white. There's no way I can tell you, there's no way I can overstate how unique Christianity it is, is compared to all the other world religions and how much impact we have in a broken world. So the second principle is not only how do we bring God's love to a broken world, but how do we do it in a way that results in something better, not worse. Okay? Here's the way I look at Scripture. Every time God speaks or acts, in other words, every time God steps into our world, He does it for the purpose the specific purpose of redemption, fixing something that's broken. So if you take the Bible and you put it chronologically in the order that it's written and you begin to read it, you see God taking care of broken things in culture, bad values, cultures that abuse people, hurt people, things like that. And he begins to repair them. Another way of saying it is this way. 
culture, because of the curse, is always going to take us off the cliff. Always. There's no reversal to that. There's no example where that's not true. Hence, go look at the United Nations website. Culture, because of the curse, is going to take us right off the cliff. Christianity, when appropriately applied within culture, does this. It provides a turn away from that destructive trajectory. When you look at God's word, it takes us this way. It turns us back and gives us a better answer to how to solve problems. Wherever I am in the Bible, that's my fundamental starting point. God is redemptive. So all these Old Testament passages that we scratch our heads going, huh? If we could understand the context in which they were written, and many of them we can, we can see how God was being redemptive and protective of his creation and his people. So not only how, principle number one, how do we bring God's love out to this world, principle number two is, does our interpretation and our practice as a church bring these principles out in a way that is redemptive, in a way that, that fixes broken things, in a way that helps people? Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, Bill Spears teaching a class right across the hallway, and his forte, his specialty is apologetics. That's a defense of Scripture. Where does he go to defend the Scriptures? He goes outside of the Scriptures to culture, mostly through archaeology, but not always. And he looks at things, and we find lots of the facts of the Bible are validated by history and archaeology. He went to the culture of the ancient world to show that this is a reliable document. It's very reliable. Or, I didn't bring it in, if I had brought in my Greek uh, lexicon, dictionary, uh, it's about that thick, okay, of looking at all the words in the New Testament, what they mean, different range of meaning, different options. How did we figure out what a word meant? How do we figure out what agape means? We just didn't, surprisingly, I know you find this hard to believe, but we didn't Google it. No, there's a group of scholars that went back and looked at all the uses of the word agape in the first century and said, this is what that word means. Understanding Greek grammar or Hebrew grammar, where'd that come from? We have scholars that went back in the first century and earlier and said, look at linguistics. Look at how they communicated it. That's how we understand that. Culture is indispensable. It is critical for Bible study. And you're the recipients of that all the time. All the time. Every time you pick up an English text and read it, there are a bunch of people that have went back and looked at uh, culture to make sense of it and put it in your language in a way that is faithful and reliable. Well, the question we're asking is in another area is what does culture do for application? Culture shows us how God is redemptive. If we understand what is broken, then we can understand what God did to repair it. If we don't understand what's broken, it's very difficult to understand what God did to repair it. And that's what culture is telling us, what is broken. That's answering the question, what was broken? Let me give you one example. <clears throat> I'm going to read some passages. Don't bother to look them up. I'm not looking them up, so you're not going to keep up with me. They're all out of Proverbs. And you can write them down and look at them later. This is addressing the question, how do you discipline adults in the Old Testament world? Proverbs 10, 13, wisdom is found on the lips of the discerning, but a rod 
is for the back of him who lacks judgment. Not for the buttocks. The back. It's a rod on the back. It's how they used to punish in the ancient world. Proverbs 18.6. The lips of a fool enter into strife and his mouth invites a flogging. That's on the back. Flog a scorner, Proverbs 19.25 tells us. And as a result, the simpleton will learn prudence. Correct a discerning person and he will result. And as a result, he will understand knowledge. Or Proverbs 19.29, judgment are prepared for scorners, and floggings are for the backs of fools. Proverbs 26.3, a whip for the horse and a bridle for the donkey, but a rod for the backs of fools. If we applied these verses today, we'd be in jail. (laughs) Now, some of you that raise teenagers think that there may be a legitimate case. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I raised four of them. It's God's grace that they're alive today, and I'm not in jail. But you know what I mean. If we applied these verses the way they're written, we would be in jail. How in the world is this redemptive? How is this wisdom? These are all right out of Proverbs. How does this reflect wisdom? The way to answer that question is to look at the cultural context and see what God is doing. I'm going to give you some of the Egyptian disciplinary practices um, just to give you a context. If you didn't pay your land tax in Egypt, there was 100 strokes. Grab a rod and beat the you-know-what out of the guy. Civil administrators. Now, you might pay attention to this one. This might be applicable today. Civil administrators who used state workers for their personal gain, it was 200 blows, five open wounds. You can't create six, but you can beat them hard enough to create up to five, and they have to replace all the days lost. They have to pay for it. Wow. That's harsh. If you interfered with uh, a, a herdsman with this pasture, it was 100 blows, and five open wounds. All of a sudden, Israel doesn't sound so bad, does it? Now listen to the Assyrians. By the way, the Assyrians, in my opinion, were the most, the most uh, violent, horrendous people the world has ever seen when it came to brutality. When they ta- conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, they were absolutely brutal. They raped the women. They took the children smash their heads on the rocks to kill them. They would cut people's faces off while they were alive. There's no way to describe how horrendous they were. So listen to their discipline limits. If a woman just lays a hand on a man, that's all she has to do. 20 blows with a rod, and she had to pay 3,600 shekels of lead, which is a lot of money. On the other side, if a man strikes a woman, if anyone strikes a woman, causing her to abort the fetus, it's 50 blows and one month's service and 9,000 shekels of lead. If a prostitute wore a veil, that's how they were identified as a prostitute, they didn't wear a veil. 50 blows and you pour hot tar over her head. A man who does not report a prostitute wearing a veil It's 50 blows, one month in the king's service. Listen to this one. 
talking about a husband's right to punish his wife uh, for whatever he feels uh, she needs punishment for. It doesn't specify. A man can whip his wife, and it doesn't say how many blows. That's up to him. A man can whip his wife, pluck out her hair, mutilate her ears, and strike her. This goes on and on. You see how brutal the ancient world was? It's just brutal. These are the nations around uh, Israel. It's brutal. So when God steps in and begins to talk about righteousness, he's beginning to be redemptive. He's beginning to curtail these abuses and start to moderate them. Listen to the overarching principle in Deuteronomy 24. If controversy, uh, Deuteronomy 25. If controversy arises between people, they should go to court for judgment. When a judge hears the case, they shall exonerate the innocent but condemn the guilty. Then, if the guilty person is sentenced to a beating, the judge shall force him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of blows his wicked behavior deserves. Now, how much is that? We just heard one, two hundred, five hundred blows. The judge may sentence him to 40 blows and no more. No more. If he is struck with more than these, you might view your, Ill, your fellow Israelite with contempt. So not only is God taking abusive behaviors from the surrounding nations and corralling them and controlling them, reducing them, he's now introducing the concept of human dignity. We don't want to embarrass each other. That's amazing, isn't it? When you compare the principles in Proverbs to the surrounding world, then you can see that God was redemptive. You get that? So what you have is you have the surrounding world, which is very brutal. Then you have the wisdom of the Old Testament, which begins to moderate that, introduce human dignity. Then as you move into the New Testament, you begin to introduce forgiveness, turning the other cheek, better ways of dealing with offense. You just don't beat the you-know-what out of people. Okay? That's called redemption. God is interfering in world events to stop the abuses and atrocities of humanity. That's what the Bible tells us. We would not have known that if we hadn't discovered the discipline practices of both the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the other nations. There are others. That's how we see. That's why we look at culture, to get a glimpse of what God is doing. All right. We're going to look at two passages. If you want to follow along with these, they're both in Acts. Uh, there's a Bible in your pews. Many of you have it on your phones. Acts chapter 11. And we're going to read some of this together. And we're going to ask the question, uh, how do they apply these principles, this principle of culture to understanding Scripture? Acts chapter 11. Here's the background. In Acts chapter 10, God called Peter to go talk to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and eat in his home, which was against the law. It made him unclean. So Peter, you may remember the vision, three times he said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to go. My mouth has never touched anything unclean. And God said, whoa, wait a minute. What I declare as clean, don't you declare as unclean? Well, he just he declared the Gentiles unclean, but he, he now declares them clean. So Peter goes, and while he's talking to them and explaining, he didn't even get to the punchline. Jesus died on the cross for your sin. He's just starting to explain in the Holy Spirit. Sweeps through the house, and they all begin speaking in tongues. And Peter goes, whoa, we didn't talk about circumcision. We didn't talk about the law. We didn't talk about the cross. We didn't talk about any of that stuff. 
and the Holy Spirit came. Why? Because they believed. It represents a new paradigm in world history. Acts chapter 11, the very next chapter. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, those are the Jewish Christians, uh, the, Jewish, the Jews who had accepted Christ, the Jewish Christians, they criticized them. They said, what are you doing? You went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. You know better than that. So starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. Jumping down to verse 15, near the end of the story, as I began to speak, he didn't even get to the punchline yet, I love it, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and they praised God saying, wow, wow. Even to the Gentiles, God had granted repentance that leads to life. Can you imagine in the first century church the struggles they had they knew the Mosaic Law. These Jewish Christians knew it well. 613 commands, and they knew it. And these Gentiles were now coming into the church, and they're asking the fundamental question that we're asking today. What of all those laws still apply today? Which ones do we enforce, and which ones do we not enforce? Isn't that the question we're wrestling with as a church? That's why we said we're not asking you to change your interpretation. We're asking you to think together as a community about which ones apply today. I can't even imagine. They didn't have the New Testament to guide them. They didn't have any of that. What did they have? They had the model of Jesus. And what did we see last week? Jesus did not mind breaking the law. Pharisees came to him and said, your disciples are breaking the law by eating uh, grain from the grain on the Sabbath. He said, yeah, you're right. And then he said, guess what? Your priests break the law every Sabbath by serving and working in the temple. So why would he do that? Because there is a higher principle than the command. The higher principle is God's love for people. They were hungry. And he uses David as the example who broke the law and ate the showbread out of the holy place. And for the priests who are serving in the temple, if they didn't break the law, you couldn't go to the temple on the Sabbath. So he's arguing that there is a higher principle, Jesus did, called love. That supersedes the commands about the Sabbath. So Jesus set the principle, and if you go listen to last week, there's other places we talked about where he didn't mind breaking the law. He didn't mind becoming unclean for people. He's the one that set the model that the law, the commands of God, are not the ultimate. It's his love for a broken world and done in a redemptive way that's the ultimate. That's the only model they had to go with. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. They're the ones that are getting ready to write it. So how did they interpret, how did they apply that? Look in Max 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some of the other believers, to go to Jerusalem. Let's go to uh, 
let's go to the central church to talk to the apostles and elders and ask about this question. So the church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This, mood, mood, this news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, now remember, all the different aspects of Judaism are beginning to turn to Christ here. That's what's happening. So we have Pharisees who are now Christians. They stood up and they said, wait a minute. The Gentiles have to be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. That was the requirement of the law. They're stuck with a dilemma. Do we obey this command or not? The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God knows the heart, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Think about what he's asking them. Why, now then, why do you try to test God by asking them to obey commands? Yep. Ouch. No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they, they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the wonders and signs God had done among the Gentiles. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name among the Gentiles. And he quotes an Old Testament passage, verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from four things. Food offered idols, sexual immorality, meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Why those four? There's 613 of them. Why those four? And by the way, soon after that, Paul said, it is okay to eat offered idols. In fact, we don't have a record of Paul ever enforcing these four, except sexual immorality, one of the four. What made them decide that? What made them decide that? And I would suggest this is an example of both principles. They're wrestling with this because of their love for these Gentiles. The same love that God had demonstrated toward them. That's principle number one. But principle number two is how do we bring this out to them in a way that is redemptive, in a way that honors the intent of the gospel, that is to redeem us, at the same time to make the gospel attractive and not offensive. So they picked four key things that the Gentiles were known for. And he says, let's just ask them to keep these four things. So what we learn is that as the Jews come to the cross, they're asked to give up their commitment to legalism, which is what they're doing. As the Gentiles come to the cross, they're asked to give up their pagan uh, ways of sexual immorality, which is a very different approach. Both of them are asked to change. But the principle I want you to see here is that um, when they made this decision at this church council, 
They didn't ask him to keep all the laws. They said, we'll set all these aside, but these four. That demonstrates our two principles, love for the broken world and how to do it in a way that's good for the culture. So they had to make a decision, what are we going to leave out? What are we going to leave out? Obeying the law was not their primary concern. I know that surprises some of you. Obeying the law was not their primary concern. Their primary concern were our two principles, how to bring the love of God to a broken world and how to do it in a way that moves the culture to a better place. And they were willing to overlook all those other commands. And so they followed the example of Jesus. And then they give us the model itself. So we had the example from Jesus last week and the examples of the uh, disciples and the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem this week. By the way, just by kind of a way of postscript, the slavery texts, when you look at the texts in the New Testament dealing with slavery, they demonstrate redemption in that the master was now to show love and fairness to the slave. So when Christianity came along and says, masters, treat your slaves fairly, that was unique. Because slaves were property. You could literally do what you wanted with them. You could beat them, you could rape them, you could do all those things. You could abuse them. And Christianity came along and said, no, that's not in keeping with our two principles, love and redemption. You can't do that. So the slavery texts demonstrate redemption and that the master was now to show love and faithfulness and fairness to the slave. When those texts ceased to be redemptive in culture, they were replaced by the higher principle of love and slavery was abolished. 150 years ago. The Bible never says don't have slaves. But the Christians 150 years ago, they got it. They got it. And they said there is a higher principle at work here. These passages no longer represent redemption in our current world. And that, I would suggest, is a model for what it means to cease or continue a biblical activity. I would argue that we cease a biblical activity when, number one, the higher principles of love and redemption take priority. And number two, when the principle is no longer redemptive in the greater society. After the slavery text was abolished, guess who the first person was to say we have the same issue with the role of women? Charles Finney, one of the leading evangelists of the second century, followed by Dwight Moody. <clears throat> These men stood up and said, wait a minute, we have the same situation here. So I would suggest to you the second principle we cease a biblical activity when the higher principles of love and redemption take priority. And number two, when the principle is no longer redemptive within the greater society. Slavery is an example for the males because the males were the slave owners. Now listen to some of the examples for women in the New Testament. Jewelry. When it's no longer an issue, it doesn't matter. By the way, it is an issue in India. When I teach in India... The women there have to wear gold and half don't. The ones that don't are offended by the ones that do because that communicates wealth. 
And we've worked through this passage and say, in this culture, you probably shouldn't be wearing gold jewelry. That's not an issue in our culture. So it no longer applies. Braided hair, head coverings. If we went back and looked at the cultural context of each of those, we would see why the authors of Scripture encourage them to do that. But they're no longer issues in our culture or the higher principles of love and redemption have taken priority and the principle taught no longer is redemptive. Does that make sense? Principle number one, God's love for a broken world guides how and when we apply a passage today. Principle number two, God's uh, desire and example to redeem this broken world around us guides how and when we apply a passage today or the question we're trying to answer, does our interpretation and practice lead to redemption in our own current cultural setting? Those are the principles that we follow in trying to decide when to obey a command and when not to. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us, your graciousness, your love. Thank you for your fairness. Thank you for not giving us a rule book that we just have to follow woodenly. Lord, there are many other religions that have that, and we're not one of them. Thank you for giving us the freedom to ask these questions. How do we bring your goodness and your gospel to a world so in need of, of redemption and love and care? Father, we love this culture. This is our home, and we love it, but we're so aware how broken it is. Help us, Lord, to not only accept the responsibility, but to enjoy it, to shape our practices in such a way that the broken world can see our belief and trust in you. In your son's name we pray.